10 or 12 subjects I could drop in for the guys to answer, but uh, I was thinking it'd be better to hear from you uh, something that would be of interest to you. So let's begin with prayer, and then I'm going to read for us the passage this morning. Father, thank you that you are present here today, and thank you that we can come to hear your word. What a delight that is, what a joy it is to study the scriptures and to see how it speaks to our world and speaks to our life. And so, Father, would you be pleased this morning to speak through me, to guide me in my words, and use your scripture, Father, powerfully in our lives to encourage and bless your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read for you the passage we're going to look at this morning, chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you, and I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires, they will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forgot that long ago by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Amen. One of the most memorable statements in American history are the words spoken by General Douglas MacArthur when he said to the nation of the Philippines, I shall return. In July of 1941, President Franklin Roosevelt had named MacArthur the commander of the uh, armed forces, the army, in the uh, Far East. And then came December 7th, the attack on Pearl Harbor. And everyone knew that we were now going to war. And then on December 8th, the Japanese launched their attack on the Philippines. MacArthur and his troops were outnumbered, outgunned in that first wave of the attack. The Japanese destroyed much of the air support that was there on the Philippines and in the days ahead would really decimate that whole air force and the um, planes that were there. MacArthur's forces were isolated, but they fought desperately. They retreated to the peninsula of Bataan where they resisted courageously for four months. And then in March of uh, 1942, Roosevelt ordered MacArthur to Australia to assume the uh, commander of the Allied Forces position in the South Pacific. MacArthur, on one hand, did not want to leave his troops, but understood that this order was given for him to leave. And that night, uh, he was taken by a Navy torpedo boat 
he and his wife and his son, they were taken from Corregidor to the southern Philippines, and from there they flew to Australia. And it was in Australia that he made that famous promise that I shall return. It would take three years. Many battles would be fought along the way. But on October 20th, 1944, the Allied troops returned to the Philippines. And six months later, most of the islands were free. When I think about that promise that MacArthur made, and it wasn't just for him, it was for the Allies to return and to liberate the Philippines. I wonder how the people of that nation felt during those three years. Did they believe that promise that he would return? Did that promise give them hope and encouragement? Did they do everything that they could on their part to hasten that day? Did they doubt that would ever happen? Or did they trust in that promise and look for their liberation? You know, 2,000 years ago, our Lord made a promise just like that when he said that I will return. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. You know, when I read that promise of Jesus, one of the things that sticks out to me is how the nations will mourn when they see him. For those who have rejected Christ, that will not be a happy day when the promise comes true and he returns once again to establish his kingdom on the earth. But for those who know him, that will be a day of joy and liberation. And that promise is repeated many times in the scripture. George Sweeting, a former president of Moody, said this. He said, more than a fourth of the Bible is predictive prophecy. Approximately one third of it is yet to be fulfilled. Both the Old and New Testaments are full of promises about the return of Jesus Christ. There are over 1,800 references to it in the Old Testament. 17 Old Testament books give prominence to this theme. Of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are more than 300 references to the Lord's return, one out of every 30 verses. 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to this great event. In fact, for every prophecy on the first coming of Christ, there are eight prophecies on the second coming of Christ. Just as Jesus came once, and that is a fact of history, so he will come again. But the question we wrestle with is, why does he wait? That's the question that Peter wants to answer in this question, I mean, in this chapter. And it's interesting that um, 30 years had passed and they were already raising questions about that, wondering why Christ had not returned. And these scoffers, these false teachers came and they were there infiltrating into the church and they were mocking Jesus' promise and they were mocking the Christians who believed it. They did not have an intellectual argument against it. It's easier to just kind of scoff and make fun of something that you really don't believe. And people still do that today. 
They scoff at our Lord's return, and they mock those who believe in it. But Peter will say to us, as he said to them, he'll say, don't worry. It is just what Jesus said was going to happen. Keep trusting. Jesus Christ is coming again. And Peter makes four points in this chapter in response to their teaching. Number one, he tells us that God destroyed the world in judgment once, and one day he will do it again. God acted in history once to destroy the world, and there is another day coming in which he will judge the world. And so Peter begins this chapter by saying, remember. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. He calls them his beloved. He refers to them as friends here, our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And he said, I have written to, to you on these two occasions, both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to have sound thinking. I want you to understand the scripture and see how it applies to our life today. I want you to be encouraged by it. And most of all, I want you to recall two things. Remember these two things. Remember the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets, those 1,800-some references to the second coming of Christ. And I want you to remember the command of our Lord Jesus given through the apostles. When we think about the command of the Lord Jesus, in Peter's mind, that was clear, but we're not certain what that command was that he was referring to. Was it the command that Jesus gave in Matthew 24 to watch and be ready? To watch and be ready for his coming? Was it the command that he gave to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ as the world goes on? We need to do that, and by that all men would know that we are his disciples? Was it the command to go and make disciples of all nations and Jesus would be with us until the end of the age and then he would return? Or was it the command that Peter mentioned in 1 Peter 1 that we are to be holy as God is holy? Now that's interesting. I would have turned to the other ones, but some of the commentators turned to that command given in Peter for this reason that these false teachers, these scoffers, were not only mocking the return of the Lord, but they were also mocking this command to holiness. By their life, they were living in an immoral fashion, not fearing his return, thinking he's not coming back, there's no day of judgment, we can live as we please. And because of that, they believed that Peter was reminding the church that we are to be holy as God is holy. Scoffers will come following their own evil desires, the scripture says. They don't want Christ to return because of their own sin. It's not an intellectual argument against it. It's really a moral choice that they have made, just like some people reject believing in Christ today, not because the evidence is there, but because they don't want to change their life. And so they ask the question, where is his coming? And their argument is really a naturalistic one. It is one of uniformity. They say things like this, like everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. The earth has existed. Everything's gone on from the beginning of time. It kind of continues with no change. It's interesting that their belief is also one of the major tenets of evolution. 
It's the principle of uniformitarianism, that everything continues just as it has done from the beginning of time. Really? Really? There have been no catastrophic events that would interrupt that or maybe change our world? We don't know that. That's an assumption that is being made. For example, two people can stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and look out on that magnificent natural wonder and be in awe of what they see. And one can say, isn't it amazing what a little water can do over a long period of time? And the other person can say, isn't it amazing what a lot of water could do over a short period of time? Things do change in our world. God has spoken and he bears witness to the way in which he has acted in history. And what Peter says here in verse 5 is that they deliberately forget. They willfully choose not to believe that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. God spoke and the world came into existence. He's referring to Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, where God separated the waters under the heavens from the water that was above the heavens, and he created the sky, that area where the birds would flock and inhabit. And then he gathered the waters under the sky, and the dry ground appeared, and God called the dry ground land. And that same God who created the world is the one who also destroyed the earth by water in judgment with a worldwide flood. And Peter references that when he talks about these things that they have deliberately forgotten, willfully gotten, that by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. God gave a promise at that time that he would never act in that fashion again to destroy the earth with a flood. It's the sign of the rainbow that he put in the sky as a witness to us of his promise and his faithfulness. But the day is coming, the scripture says, when he will judge the earth with fire with a fire that purifies, with a fire that will prepare that new heaven and new earth. It's interesting that Jesus said that just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And just like in those days, people were getting married and having children, starting their families, going about their work, doing all the things that people do, and so they will be doing those kind of things when Jesus comes at his second coming. Life will be going on, and people will be going about their business, not expecting it. But the day is coming when Jesus will return, and all that holds it back is God's word. God's word. Secondly, Peter goes on to tell us that God's timing is not the same as ours. And we see that in verse 8 when he says, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. We are creatures of time. God is not bound by time. We get impatient pretty easily. We don't like waiting at a traffic light sometimes if we're in a hurry, you know. And We'd like to hit all those lights when they're green so that we can make it through and go on our way. And some days it's like you just hit every red light as you're going to work or going down to the cities. And we get impatient. 
We get impatient standing in a checkout line, and it always seems like the other line moves first, and then you get the line where they flip on the light and they have to call for somebody to check things out or scan it. God is not like that at all. In God's timetable, there is no delay. His timing is always perfect. In Galatians 4.4, for example, he said, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, referring to his first coming. When everything was ready, everything was prepared for Christ to arrive on this planet in his incarnation, God sent his son. And that was true of his first coming, and it will be true of his return, that when the time is ripe, Jesus Christ will return. You know, in this passage, Peter uses the example that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years. He's going back to Psalm 90 where it talked about how God is everlasting. From age to age, he is the same through all of time and history. And for him, it's like a thousand years passes like a day and a night. Now, Peter wasn't saying here exactly, definitely, that, you know, one day to the Lord is a thousand years. It was because of this passage that pretty early on in church history, some people adopted the view that just as there were 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham and 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ, there would be 2,000 years of the church age corresponding to the six days of creation and then a 1,000-year millennium that would come. And some held to that uh, belief and thought that that's the way that history would unfold. But Peter isn't saying that the day is equal to a thousand years. He's saying a day is like it. That with God, he just doesn't view time the same way that we do. And today, Jesus is standing at the door. He is ready at any moment when the Father says, this is time to return. He will step back into history as we know it to establish his kingdom on the earth. When will that day be? Again, we honestly don't know. Jesus himself said that no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. When I think about that passage, I think about the Jewish custom at that time regarding marriage. When a young man uh, was betrothed to a young woman to be married in that culture, What he would do after they had uh, made this covenant to one another is he would return to his father's house to build a room, to add a room on. And you can think of John chapter 14, where Jesus said, in my father's house are many rooms and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Jesus is the groom, the church is his bride. And so he's going back to his father's house to prepare a place for us. And one day he will come and take us to be with him. That's what he said in John chapter 14. But what was interesting about that custom was that it wasn't the son, it wasn't the young man who was going to get married that decided when the room was ready. No, that was the right of the father. The father would look things over. And he would be the one who would say to the son, now things are ready. Now is the time to go and get your bride and bring her back that she might be with you. And Jesus is saying that same thing here, that only the Father in heaven knows. And when the Father says it's time for the groom to return for his bride, he will return. 
In the meantime, Jesus said to his disciples, I want you to live expecting my return any day. Any day, I want you to watch and I want you to be ready. Ali Eklav, who's a friend of mine and a pastor down in Illinois, tells a story about a man named Robbie Robbins. And Robbie Robbins was an Air Force pilot during the first Iraq War. And after his 300th mission, he was surprised to be given permission to immediately pull his crew together and fly his plane home. They flew across the ocean to Massachusetts, and then he had a long drive to western Pennsylvania. They drove all night. They were so excited to be home. And when his buddies dropped him off at his driveway just after sunup, there was a big banner across his garage that said, Welcome home, Dad. Well, he was surprised. I mean, how did they know? No one had called. The crew themselves hadn't expected to leave so quickly. And when I walked into the house, the kids were getting ready for school, and they screamed, Daddy, Daddy's home. And then I looked down the hall, and Susan came running, and she looked terrific. Her hair was fixed, she had makeup on, she was wearing a crisp yellow dress, and I said, how did you know? I didn't, she answered through tears of joy. But once we knew the war was over, we knew you'd be home one of these days, and we knew you would try to surprise us. So we were ready every day. We were ready every day. What a great way to live for us as Christians. To be ready every day. Lord, if it's today, that's okay with me. Lord, if it's today that you're going to come back, we look forward to your coming. What a great way to live. Thirdly, God is merciful in his delay. And we see that in verse 9. He said, The Lord, Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. As much as we would like to see our Lord come back, every day he waits is another day for more people to come to know Jesus. And that's good. That's a very good thing. Every day he waits is another day where more people can come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He is extremely patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You know, and think about that. I mean, when we look at the sin in our world and we see and hear in the news some of the horrible things that are going on in our world, the atrocities that are committed, the murders, the crimes, the abuse, all of those things. I mean, honestly, aren't there days when in your heart you go, Lord, how can you see all of that? How can you see all of that and, and not act and not put an end to it all? It is because God is extremely patient, not wanting anyone to perish but giving people an opportunity to come into a relationship with him, to turn from their sin and to turn to Christ. He is giving people time to hear the gospel and respond, and he calls us to pray for all men. In 1 Timothy 2, um, Paul writes about that, instructing us to pray for kings and all who are in authority in order that we might live quiet and tranquil lives, in order that we might have the freedoms we do to share the gospel. 
And he calls us to go and to make disciples of all nations, to continue about his Father's business until the day when Christ returns. Today, according to the U.S. Center for World Missions, there are still three billion people who need to hear about Jesus. That's 42% of the world's population that still need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly presented. About two-thirds of those are in what we call unreached people groups. That's a, a missiological term that refers to people that don't have a church planting movement within their people group or ready access to be able to hear the gospel in some fashion. And most of those people live in what is called the 1040 window, that region around the earth that is about 10 degrees north of the equator to 40 degrees north of the equator. It includes the Middle East, Central Asia, parts of China, India, Indonesia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, all of those nations as you go around the globe. That is where most of the unreached people groups are. And that's why we as a church are involved in world missions. That's why we as a church have followed God's leading and are working with two unreached people groups in closed access areas. In just a few months, too, as one of the missionaries that we are supporting goes to the field, we will likely be involved in a third unreached people group. And those are things that I don't share in messages on Sunday morning on the details because these messages are put out on the Internet and we want to be careful about those that we are supporting. The way you find out about it, really, I encourage you to come to our mission potlucks that we have or come when we have missionaries who are returning so you can hear those stories and pray effectively for them and um, continue to be involved in what they are doing. But it is a joy to partner with them in the work that is going on in missions around the world. And there's some pretty exciting things that have been happening even this past year. You know, a number of years ago, when Gil and I were first involved with Campus Crusade for Christ, the Jesus film was developed as a tool for evangelism. That Jesus film it was made in 1978. It's been translated in over 1,200 languages around the world, shown in more than 120 countries. And to date, more than 200 million people have indicated a decision to follow Jesus Christ after seeing that film on the Gospel of Luke. And I love how Paul Eshelman described his motivation when he was the director of that project. He said it's because everybody deserves a chance to hear about Jesus. Why was that tool developed? Why were people so passionate about bringing the gospel to the unreached peoples? It's because everybody deserves a chance to hear about Jesus. Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, 14, that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. You know, when I look at when is Jesus Christ going to return, that's one of the verses that I look at. And I keep thinking there is so much more still to be done. And we are living in an age when that is accelerating, when people have adopted unreached people groups, when the gospel is going forth, but there is still opportunity. And this is the time to work while we still have the day. But fourth, 
God's son will come suddenly. And we see that in verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. The day of the Lord will come suddenly like a thief in the night. It's the same expression that Jesus used in Matthew 24. And Peter speaks of the day of the Lord as a single event, and you'll hear the prophets speak about it that way, and he kind of compresses everything, you know, and we think about the day of the Lord and his return. We think about, you know, this series of events that are going to happen. We think about the rapture of the church. We think about the rise of the Antichrist. We think about the focus on Israel and Jerusalem and the nations gathering for the battle of Armageddon. We think about the great apostasy, the false church, and the great tribulation. And we think about the return of Christ, the outpouring of God's wrath. We think about the establishment of his kingdom and the millennium that's going to come and the fire that's going to destroy this present earth and purify it. But we don't know the time of all of those things. We struggle with that. We wrestle with that. And Peter compresses all of that together, says, don't worry. Don't worry, he speaks so matter-of-factly about it. The day of the Lord is coming. It's going to catch people by surprise. It's going to come, so be ready no matter what. And continue to go about your father's business. Don't be anxious. Don't listen to the scoffers. That day is going to come. He tells of the awful destruction of the earth by fire when the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. What will that day be like? What he tells us is it will be a day of judgment and destruction for the ungodly, but it will be a day of hope and salvation for those who know Christ. Jesus himself talked about that day when he gave the parable of the sheep and the goats, and he said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels are with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he said, and then they, that is the goats, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. That day is coming. And once that decision is made, there's no second chance. About 20 years ago, a large earthquake rocked the city of Los Angeles. A young couple living in North Hollywood were just two miles from the epicenter of that earthquake. The husband was named Bruce and the wife was Kathleen and they had been shaken away, the power had gone out, the house was dark and the first thing they did was they went to the room where their two babies were and they grabbed their babies to crawl out of the house. They had tried to walk, but the house was shaking so violently that they were thrown to the ground. Bruce received gashes on his face and bare feet from the broken glass. Kathleen said they were grateful to make it out alive. And after that event, she made this comment about what had happened. She said, for years I've known that I need to put latches on our cabinets and secure our pictures and mirrors and platters and antiques and hung on the wall. I meant to put shoes and flashlights by our bed. I've read the earthquake pamphlets. I've seen the programs on TV. I really meant to do it, but I just kept putting it off. 
I intended to make the house ready for a quake. I really did, but I just thought I had more time. And when the quake came, it was too late to get ready. So shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. The time to get ready is now. It's today to be ready and to live ready. And so I ask you these questions. Are you ready for his coming? Are you at peace with God? Do you know that your sins are forgiven and you have eternal life? Are you sure of that relationship with him? And if you are not sure, I would urge you today to open your heart to him, to confess your sins, and to receive his gift of eternal life. And as we think about this question, I think we also think not only of ourselves, but what about our friends? What about our family? Are there any that you know who do not know Christ? And what will you do to help them to know Jesus? Let's pray. Father, as we come before you today, what an awesome event that will be when the skies are parted and Jesus, our Savior and Lord, returns. And those who have scoffed him, for them it will be a day of judgment with no return. But for those who know him, what a great joy it will be to be in your presence. And Father, I pray for those who are here today and those who may be listening. If you have never received Jesus as your Savior and Lord before, today, would you open your heart and ask Jesus to forgive your sins, to come into your life, to be your Savior and Lord. He will take you at your word and he will begin a new relationship with you. Jesus, thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for the gift of eternal life for all who trust in you. Amen.